Yeah, sorry for the rough transition, but there you have it. So there's an old male, obviously, Jewish morning prayer that goes like this. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman or a Gentile. So think of a Jewish man saying this prayer. So the Gentile's clear. You're outside the covenant. You're outside the place of blessing. Not a woman. You know, subject to all the physical challenges that women, the weaker and fairer sex, are subject to. And also, of course, in the Jewish culture, especially some of the restrictions that are incumbent on women, not on men. I have never prayed that prayer. Just I'll settle that right now. I've never prayed that prayer. <laughs> but... I would be quick to add, I am certainly glad I am not a woman. And ladies, we love you. I love my wife, love my sisters, love my daughters, love my granddaughters, but I'm really glad not to be in your mix. The reason you've got this movie logo up, listen to this quote from a 1994 movie called Junior. And by the way, this is around Roe v. Wade, this is around Pro-Life Sunday, this is a comedy movie that we watched and had no idea what kind of a pro-life message the movie would end up having, but it does. So in this scene in the movie, there's a female scientist who's venting to her male scientist friend about being a woman. And she says this. She says it with more emotion than I'll be able to muster today. Higher voice too. She said, you should try being a woman sometime. It's a nightmare. Your body goes peculiar with your period and doesn't stop until menopause. It's a lifetime of leaking, swelling, spotting smears, crippling cramps, raging hormones, yeasts. And then she concludes, and that's if everything's normal. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah. I wasn't sure how this would go over, but I'm, I'm, glad. I'm glad it went over. Okay, we passed that milestone. So, so, to be human really is to be privileged, right? And to be female as a human is a privilege. To, to bear God's image as a woman is a privilege. And yet, it comes with some huge challenges as well. Listen to this. An older gentleman who's also a veteran uh, interacted with our daughter Rachel and her family. They were in San Diego a couple weeks ago. And not knowing, they just headed to the park, Balboa Park, this huge park in town, and there's a pro-life rally going on. So they get out, take their kids, three little boys, and go out and they're chatting with this older gentleman who's also a veteran. So they've had their chat, and they thank him for his service to his country. And he turns around and he thanks them for having children. And Alan, my son-in-law, says, well, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> only a man would say it or say it that way or with that alacrity so God graces those he loves with blessings but what we find is that a lot of times those blessings come with their own challenges and the challenge is part of the privilege and the blessing you know if you're in this church anytime at all I hope you know we love children we value children we have lots of children. You know, we'd be in trouble if we didn't like them, wouldn't we? Uh, but think of what it takes to get there. So forget the guy, just the gal. In fact, I was talking to Callie this morning and just say, how, how are you feeling, you know? So morning sickness, I don't know what, Callie, I don't know what of any of this applies to you. 
morning sickness, you can't stand the smell of foods you loved a week or a month ago, total change in body shape along with unwanted weight gain. The thing for me is something inside you pushing. You know, little feet and little hands and pushing. I'm thinking of your bladder especially. All of that you go through before you get to the pain of delivering the child. And whether you do it the old-fashioned way or today you have surgery, you cannot escape the pain of giving birth. It's part and parcel of the privilege of having children. So it's a blessing for a mom to be a mom and to have children, but it comes along with particular elements of suffering and challenge as well. We're in the Heroes and Villains series again this morning. We're looking at a young Jewish girl named Miriam or Miriam, or more commonly to us, Mary. So the little girl in Galilee, God chose to, be ter- to become the maternal means by which Jesus would be born. So you think of Mary, her role was absolutely singularly unique because there was only going to be one woman in all the world through whom Jesus the Messiah would be born and it was going to be her. And I'll just remind you before we get into the lesson proper, these are semi-biographies, but they're only focusing on a very narrow slice of the life of the individual we're looking at related to an element of faithfulness you see particularly in one area. So there's all kinds of things we could say about each individual we look at, but we'll say very little because it's a narrow focus. And with that, remember that what we want to do is inspire, engender more of the life of Christ that's in us. And what we saw in the very first message in this series was that Jesus was the epitome of faithfulness in the incarnation. That God the Son come to earth in our humanity, He demonstrated all His life faithfulness to God the Father. And so Christ in us is faithful. And we're engendering more of that faithfulness based on Christ's life in us as we look at some of the folks that have reflected Christ-like faithfulness in their lives. The timeline, and guys, we've sort of parked here on this, this timeline, 400 silent years from Malachi forward. We've got the birth of John and Jesus about 4 B.C., crucifixion up around 33 A.D., At the main point, and this is what we want to go away with, I think this is undersold, this message, especially in the West. Uh, Participation, and really twofold in this, participation in God's work is a privilege. Whatever it costs you in life, to participate in what God is doing is a privilege, but it's often fraught with challenges, suffering, and pain. And faithfulness requires embracing the challenges along with the privilege. That the challenge, the pain, and the suffering is not a mistake. It's part and parcel with the privilege. And faithfulness requires embracing them both. We're going to be in Luke 1, 26-56. If you use a pew Bible, that's page 855. And guys, I'll read most of the verses here. I'll skip a few for time's sake. But you remember, we're following up on the same storyline we started a few weeks ago when... Suddenly, after 400 years of silence, God sends Gabriel, the the angel messenger from heaven. He goes to Zechariah in the temple. You and your wife, who are too old to have kids, you're going to have a little baby. It's John, John the Baptist. Tells him what you're going to name him. And he's going to be the voice from Isaiah 40. And he's going to be the one in the spirit of Elijah from Malachi 4. So this is immediately following that. This is Luke 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month, six months after... Gabriel visited Zechariah. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth up in the north 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern or figure out what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. <clears throat> Excuse me. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there will be no end. This is, this is echoes of promises in the Old Testament about God establishing an eternal kingdom. Verse 34, Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Uh, two points here. She asks a question, and Zechariah did the same thing. In Zechariah's case, there was clearly this element of unbelief because God spoke sort of judgmentally, you didn't believe, you're not going to speak. That'll be the sign. Um, and she also, this is stated as a positive, but it's actually in the Greek, it's a negative. How will this be since I am a virgin? How will this be since I have not known a man is the way the Greek would read. She's not questioning that it will happen. Her only question is, how will this come about? Verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. So the angel is saying there's two impossible births that are going to occur, which tells you God is at work. So a woman too old to conceive is having John, and a woman who physically has never been with a man, she's conceiving also two impossibilities. Verse 38, Mary's response. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So verse 39 starts in those days. So about the same time. So shortly after this visit from Gabriel to Mary, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. So she goes from Galilee, Nazareth in the north, down central part of Israel to the hill country of Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah, her relative, through Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Verse 45, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This might be a contrast to Zechariah hearing that initially didn't believe Mary did. Verse 46, this is called the Magnificat, Mary's response. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Then verse 56, Mary remained with her, Elizabeth, about three months and then returned home. So, first three key, key lessons out of this. The first is this, is that privilege is, uh, it's a privilege to participate in what God's doing. And that was certainly true in spades for Mary because she has this very unique, singularly unique, role to fill in what God was up to relative to our salvation. So if you look back in verses 28 and 30, 
<coughs> excuse me, Gabriel says to Mary, greetings, O favored one, or we could say, O graced one, the Lord's with you. Verse 30, don't be afraid, Mary, you have found favor or grace with God. So favor and grace, these are positives from God towards Mary. Elizabeth says to Mary, verse 42, you are blessed among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then verse 45, blessed is she who believed. That's a different word. It comes from eulageo, which means to be spoken well of, a little different than grace. But it's you're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed. And then Mary in verses 48 and 49 says, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. So any way you slice it, Mary, by her own testimony, by the angel, by her relative, says, I've been blessed, I've been graced, I've been privileged, and uniquely so. And put yourself in her shoes for a minute, or at least in the time frame. The first promise of a Savior is at least, it's about 4,000 years before this occurs. So in Genesis 3.15, after the fall, when God speaks to Adam and Eve, He tells them the seed of the woman will crush the serpent. That is, I'm going to send a deliverer. It will be, he will be identified as the seed of the woman. He's going to come uniquely from a woman. Remember, He has no human father. God, most high, is His father. So the seed of the woman's come. So this is 4,000 years later. And in between that, you have references to this promise that continue to refine where this woman's going to come from. So you get to Genesis 12, and it probably was not clear to Abraham, but when God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, all families of the earth will be blessed through you, the New Testament tells us clearly that's a reference to Jesus. That it was through Abraham and his line that the Messiah, the seed of the woman, would come. And then you get a little further down Genesis 49, and Jacob speaks of his sons, and we're told that Judah is the tribe from which the king will come. That when Israel gets their messianic, saving, delivering king, he's going to come from Judah's line. And then from Judah's line, when the kings are established in Israel and you come to David... And David says to God, I want to build you a house. And God says, well, you're not going to build it, but your son will. Excuse me, I'm losing my screen, but it's back. Um, God says to David, I'm going to build you a house. You won't build my house. I'll build you a house. And your son will sit on a throne and he'll reign over my kingdom forever. So you got all these promises. They go back 4,000 years. And out of the blue one day, remember this is 400 years of silence, and Mary doesn't know Gabriel had shown up six months earlier to talk to Zechariah about a baby coming to their family. And out of the blue, this little gal gets a heavenly angelic visitation and said, you're the one, the Messiah's coming, and you're going to bear him. I mean, this would have been mind-boggling. And every generation of Jews was waiting for this promise to be fulfilled, for the Messiah to come. So, great, great privilege. So... There could be only one mother of Israel and the world's Savior, and she was it. And before we go on, I just want to pause for a minute because each time we do this, we want to make sure that we're taking something personal away. So we say of Mary, she's graced, she's favored, she's blessed, and singularly, uniquely so, all of which is true. 
But we don't want to forget that as Christians, you and I are not only blessed, graced, and privileged, but like her, God has particular call on your life, ways in which He means you to glorify Christ and serve Him that others can't fulfill. So for instance, John 1.12, we've been given as Christians the right, the power, the authority to be called, Scripture says, children of God. That's high privilege, guys. That's as good as we get. God is our Father. We're in the family of God through faith in Christ. God's our Father. Ephesians 1, 3-5 says, You as a Christian who are in Christ and Christ is in you, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ is yours. And you say to a Christian, how much more can God bless you? Every means by which God can give you a spiritual grace is yours in Christ already. If you're a Christian, apart from anything you do, you're graced, you're blessed, you're privileged. On top of that, this is Philippians 2.13, we're told that God gives us the will and the power to do the good works He's commissioned for us. You and I occupy spheres and relationships and levels of authority in this life, this place, and this time that God means to use us in. So Mary is the right person in the right place at the right time. But that generally is true of every Christian as well. That there are things God means for you to do that He doesn't mean for others to do. And usually this has to do with the relationships you and I have. You know, who do we have influence with? Who influences us? God's at work to give us a will to do particular tasks, particular services. You see the same thing in Ephesians 2, verse 10. And then 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, verse 10, all talk about the fact that every Christian has a spiritual gift. And again, God means for the spiritual gift He's given you to be uniquely impacted by the person you are and your life experiences, And even if you have a gift of teaching like a thousand other people, 1 Corinthians 12 says the effect that your teaching gift will have on others will be different than someone else's. And that's true of every spiritual gift. It's sort of informed and infused by your persona. So that we're not Mary, but like Mary, God has specific ways, privileges. He's graced us with opportunities to participate in what He's up to in the world, and we don't want to discount any of those. So participation is privilege, period. Now, along with that, though, participation in a world of sin and death is also very costly. So think back through this story with me for just a minute. Verse 39 and 40, shortly after Gabriel's visit, so Mary has conceived by the Spirit, she visits her relative Elizabeth. Verse 56, She remained with her relative, Elizabeth, about three months and then returned home. So think through this with me. When she left home, she's not pregnant and she's not married. When she comes home, she's three months pregnant and she's not married. And most gals are shown by three months, if not sooner. This is awkward, is it not? This is mom and dad's little girl. This is the nice little girl down the block. And she's not married and she's pregnant. So, so, does she go to mom and dad and they're like, what, 
What happened? It's okay. God, God's the parent. <laughs> if you thought that the best, the highest of your daughter, and she told you God's the father, what are you doing with that? <laughs> really? Okay. Neighbors and friends, what are they going to assume? She's been immoral. She's been unfaithful with Joseph or with somebody else. And guys, this was a different day. I think, I think it's hard for us to gain a sense of what this would have felt like for her because we are a shameless culture. There is a, a true sense in which the culture will tell you today shame is a negative thing, and shame can certainly be abused, but guys, it's a perfectly legitimate biblical word and biblical concept. The thought that shame tells me I've done something wrong. Shame is one of those elements of conviction and repentance. And we live in a culture in which if you're a young gal and you're pregnant without marriage and without a husband in the house, this is norm. In fact, in some cultures within our larger culture, that's bragging rights. I'm attractive. Men want me. I could be a mom. This is all good. None of that would have been true for Mary. She would have come home to stern looks and questions and what are you doing and what have you done and what's going on. She would have been misunderstood as soon as she got home. And the only other person at the time who knew what was going on, people, group, were down south. There's no phone, there's no email, there's no internet. And Mary's the only one in that group that knows what's going on. So immediately, she would have been misunderstood. Joseph that we'll look at separately, we know he's a good man. This is out of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Joseph knows she's pregnant and it's not me. And we're engaged. We're legally married. Marriage hasn't been consummated. Legally married. And it says he's a just man. He doesn't want to shame her publicly, but he's going to put her away quietly because he assumes there's been immorality as well until God tells him otherwise. Mary's world would have been turned upside down immediately because she was an intimate part of God's eternal plan to save us. So loss of standing with friends, relatives, loss of reputation, isolation were all part of her role in God's plans. So this would have been just from the beginning. Now on top of that, 40 days after Jesus' birth, they go to the temple because these were the rites of purification for every mother who gave birth to a son. If she gave birth to a daughter, it would have been twice that length. But they go to the Temple Mount 40 days after Jesus is born. And while they're there, you know the story probably, this old guy named Simeon, and Simeon has been told by God, you're going to live long enough to see the Messiah. And he sees Mary and Joseph and he sees the infant Jesus and God tells him that's him right there. And so he goes up and he blesses them. But he also says this. He says to Mary, he didn't have to say this, right? Because he's blessing God and blessing them. But he says, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and a sign that is opposed. And Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, you're going to have unique pain and suffering. And think of this. She's going to have the normal challenges of pain. She's going to deliver a little boy. There's going to be the challenges every parent, every mother would face. you got the story in Luke 2 when Jesus at 12 years old stays behind in the temple. 
And like two or three days later, Mary and Joseph realize he's not with the caravan, headed back. This sense of, you know, you can only imagine if you're a parent, terror, my son's not here, where is he? There's days looking for him. That certainly would have been challenging. There's also would have been confusion, and I suspect pain initially. You read this in the Synoptic Gospels, where Jesus intentionally distances himself from Mary and from his siblings. So, you know, Jesus is teaching, and they say, hey, Rabbi, you're... Your mom's here. Your siblings are here. And he says, he doesn't say, oh, bring my mom in. <laughs> he says, who is my mother, my brothers, my sisters? It's those who do the will of God. So there would have been distancing going on. And then last, and I think most profound, John 19.25 tells us that Mary was at Jesus' crucifixion. So you're a mom. You've given birth to this special child. You've watched him grow up. You've seen his public reception and ministry. But on that day, he is the image of humiliation. He's been beaten and scourged and crowned with thorns by the Romans. He's a bloody, pulpy mess when he's brought back out to the crowds. He's jeered and rejected by the people that should have embraced him as their king. He marches this bloody walk through Jerusalem to Golgotha where she watches them put spikes through his hands and his feet and put up on a cross the most humiliating difficult way the Romans or anybody else in that time of the world could think of bringing about death. And that's her son. So you know there, at that point at least, the sword goes through your heart, absolutely. In this life, Mary receives rejection, misunderstanding, loss of reputation, incredible pain, all for the privilege of participating in what God was up to. None of this suffering and pain is because she did anything wrong. It's because she's right where God wants her. She's participating as God meant her to. When we think of this, I'll try and say this carefully, when the bottom falls out of your life, I think it's normal for us to say, did I do something wrong? Have the chickens come home to roost because I did something wrong and here's the fruit of it. My life is suddenly in shambles because I'm out of line. And guys, if the bottom falls out of our life, I think it's absolutely appropriate to ask God, Lord, are you getting my attention? Is this, you know, sickness in James is sometimes tied to sin. Lord, am I out of line? Are you getting my attention? What, what am I supposed to understand from this? But if we assume that difficulty in our life is always or only because we've done something wrong, we've got a really faulty theology. Because that's simply not what you see in Scripture. So, for instance, we looked a couple of years ago at God's choicest man on planet Earth in his day, which was the man Job. And who had suffered in his day like Job because he was blameless and righteous and God boasted of Job. And yet he suffered incredibly because he was God's choice servant. You look in Philippians 20, uh, 1.29, I think this is a verse Christians tend to forget, at least in the West, from prison to people that live in the city where he was beaten and jailed, Paul writes, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul says you are privileged, you are blessed, you are graced in being called to suffer with and for Christ. That is not a message that gets much these days but that was true then and it's still true 
today, just related to that, <clears throat> a week ago I mentioned Pastor Lawan Andini. He was kidnapped January 3rd by the Islamic group uh, Boko Haram. World Magazine wrote this. In a Proof of Life video posted earlier this month, Andini pleaded for his release and proclaimed his faith in God's plan for him. This is a quote of what he said. And by the way, this has made press all over the world, in, not because it's unique, because this was just the latest you know, kidnapping of a Christian, but because the testimony he gave to Christ and to the Gospel through this video. By the grace of God, I will be together with my wife, my children, my colleague. By God's grace, I may be released. But then he said, if the opportunity is not granted, maybe it is the will of God. And Andimi was beheaded last Monday afternoon. And in Nigeria, in the last year alone, over a thousand Nigerian Christians have been executed because they were Christians. Because they followed Christ, they were executed. Now there is real participation there, and there's real pain, and there's real loss. So... He bore witness to Christ in his death. But his wife is without a husband. His kids are without their dad. And the church is without their shepherd. He was also head over an evangelical Christian group of pastors in that part of Nigeria. So real privilege in bearing Christ's name and real cost and real pain and real suffering. Guys, Africa is a deadly place today for Christians. It's not... There's all kinds of stuff going on in Nigeria. It's, they know what Philippians 1.29 is about. That you have been called, you've been granted the privilege of suffering for His name. This is, this is not ancient stories about martyrs back in the day. This is going on today because they're participating in what God's up to. Your challenges and mine, your pain, your suffering, probably is not going to be martyrdom. It's, it's a possibility. Jail, probably not, but it's a possibility. But being misunderstood, suffering rejection, the pain of other people's choices. You know, Steve's testimony talks about the value and the benefit of relationships in the body of Christ. And guys, I'll tell you, this cuts both ways. Because for stories like Steve's, there's a lot of others in which you, you will invest in the lives of others. And you'll be rejected by it. And they will make choices that you know are bringing death into their lives and the lives of others, and you can't do anything about it. But you're bound to them in fellowship and you feel the fallout of the choices they make as a fellow heir of the grace of God. You can't change it. There's pain with the privilege of fellowship. Being accused. Uh, what we lose to follow Christ, what we give up to follow Christ, what we give away to follow Christ, it is costly or at least it should be. So when we take up a task God gives us, when we're pursuing God's will as we understand it, and our world is turned upside down in the midst of faithfulness, it may simply be an indication that we're participating as God means us to, and that was the case with Mary. The misunderstanding, the pain, the suffering was all part of the privilege or the call of participation. Now, Whatever the pain, whatever the suffering, whatever the loss is in this life, it is worth it. Look at verse 38. Mary's response was, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. 
Mary's initial response, she doesn't have to say to Gabriel, wait, I'll text you later, I'll think about it. She gets clarification. Okay, this is how it's going to happen. And then she just says, I'm God's servant. Whatever he wants, that's I'm up for. I'm God's servant. That was the appropriate response. She got it. She understood who God was, high and lifted up, and I'm his servant. Whatever he wants, I'm good for. Whatever he wants. Whatever that looks like in my life. The value of a servant can be measured by the statue of the master they serve. Guys, it's interesting, in this day, slavery was a huge part of the Roman world. The, the percentage of slaves in Rome alone, I think they were at least a third of the population. But do you know a slave of a high-ranking person in Rome could be more important than many free men in Rome because of their political connections, their social standing, and what they ruled over financially? Many slaves in Rome were higher positioned than many free men in Rome because of the master they served. So Mary understands, I'm a servant to the Most High God. You know, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. This child, this son, will be called the Son of the Most High. She's a servant to the power above all powers in the universe. That is not a lowly calling. That is an elevated, that is a glorious, that is a majestic role to occupy. I'm a servant of the living God. If we can say no more than that, that's a good day. God is not only my Father, but He is the one I serve. It is a glory to be called by Christ's name. So simply to participate is privilege, but with the pain that comes with the privilege, there's also reward. You know, when Jesus talked to the twelve apostles, He promised them that they would sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In fact, He told them, you know, you give up family or properties here he says you haven't lost anything he says you'll have a hundred times more family and friends farms you name it here and eternal life and the glories he he pours out on us in eternity crowns are promised to christians for faithfulness in waiting for christ's return in loving the lord in faithfulness to death think of pastor andimi and also for shepherding christ's flock there's all kinds of debates about what does a crown look like? And somebody says, I'm not too jazzed about crowns. It's like, whatever it is, you'll want it. If, if God's giving it, you'll say, that's worth having. If God, who knows all things and designed this for pleasure, says, I'm going to give you something like a crown, it will be worth having. So he says, I'm going to reward you for faithful service. And generally what you find is that when we've been faithful with what God's given us to do, he gives us more to do. But if you're doing what you're designed to do, there's a joy in that. You, know, you think of the, the uh, Jesus stories, the parables where he'll say, you ruled over, you were faithful with five, you're going to rule over five cities. You were faithful with one, I'm giving you ten more. It's that whole, whole thing of multiplication. Faithful with a little, I'm going to give you a lot. And you'll love whatever it is. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13 say this, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And that's what most of us often think when the pain comes with the privilege. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Rejo there still should be joy in the midst of that. Now let me give you a brief point. I want to, before we wind down immediately, 
I was raised in a Roman Catholic household. How many Roman Catholics, former Roman Catholics? So quite a few of us. This isn't just true for Roman Catholicism. It's also true if you're in the Eastern Orthodox segment of the church. There are teachings about Mary that raise Mary to lofty heights that I could only call idolatry. So, by the way, I grew up with a big portrait of Mary hanging above the fireplace with my parents saying the rosary every night. My friends would come over. One of my friends reminded me of this just recently. Bob would come in the front door. Vincent and Harriet are in there saying the rosary. Dad says, Bob, would you like to join us? <laughs> Bob would politely defer and head up where we were on the third floor. But Mary is raised to heights. These are some of the descriptions. Mother of God, ever-virgin, queen of heaven, intercessor, co-redeemer. And on all these titles and descriptions, none of these have biblical warrant. None of them have biblical warrant. Mary cannot be the mother of God. The phrase alone is illogical. God has no predecessor. Nobody comes before God. A human can't give birth to God. Mary is the maternal means by which Jesus gains His humanity. God the Son takes on humanity. But no person can give birth to God in that sense. God has no predecessor. Scripture is clear. Joseph kept Mary a virgin until, and the language is very clear in Matthew 2.24, until after Jesus' birth. It's also very clear that Jesus had multiple brothers and at least two sisters. That Mary not only had Jesus as her firstborn, but she had probably six or seven other children besides Jesus. Mary isn't the queen of heaven. This is an interesting one. This is a painting of the Trinity crowning Mary, queen of heaven and earth. The only time that you'll see the phrase queen of heaven used in Scripture has to do with idolatry in Jeremiah, in which the queen of heaven is the moon goddess Astarte or Ishtar. It's never used otherwise. If there was going to be a claim for the queen of heaven, it would be the church, the bride of Christ, who rules and reigns the universe forever with Jesus, but that, that appellation is not given even to the church. She's not our mediator. Scripture is clear, 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one mediator between God and men, that's Christ Jesus. 1 John 2.1, Jesus is our advocate. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us, Romans 8.26. Think of this for just a minute. God's a trinity. We usually pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the Spirit. That's sort of the, the common formula. So imagine this. God the Son intercedes and advocates for you to the Father. The Holy Spirit intercedes with you to the Father. On what logic does the trinity need any help interceding for you and me? None is needed. Unless God is not God, He's all we need. We need no other intercessor. We need no other mediator. None is available except the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And as far as co-redemptrix, this is a title that some of the Roman Catholic fold are trying to get officially sanctioned by the Pope and have been for a long time. There's one Redeemer. Acts 4.12 says there's one name by which you must be saved. It's Jesus. Jesus hung alone on the cross. It's His 
blood shed for you and I that covers our sin. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus alone, Jesus is it. Mary was a sinner who rejoiced in the God who saved her, Luke 1.47, and she was chosen by God to be the means by which Jesus would be brought into the world. Guys, in saying all of this, I want to suggest that these descriptions of Mary dishonor Mary, the real Mary, and they dishonor the God who gave her the privilege of being the means by which God would incarnate and take on our humanity. Winding down just on points of application. So looking at my life, this is on your study sheet. What has faithful obedience cost me? So I look at my life, I review my life. What has participation in God's work required from me? What's the cost been? What have I lost for the sake of Christ? What have I given up or given away for the sake of Christ? So it could be friends, reputation, finances, advancement. It could be all kinds of different things. Because the role God calls each of us to is different, and because we each have different works we're called to, we have, we're, we're different um, vessels through which God is going to work, what our service looks like will vary, and so, so will those degrees or those areas of suffering or pain or challenge. But, if you're a Christian and if you walk with the Lord and you review your life and you say it's cost you nothing to follow Christ or that it's cost you very little, I would suggest that it means you're probably following at so safe a distance that you shouldn't call yourself a follower of Christ or that we're simply living for the world. We've embraced Jesus' name. We've got heaven when we die and otherwise we're simply living life on our own terms. Guys, following Christ is costly. And if you follow Him and you obey Him faithfully, you'll find out it's painful to follow Christ in a world that crucified Him. And frankly, even in the church, you know, sometimes what you'll find is the place you expect and hope to get that comfort and affirmation and fellowship sometimes will be the place where, where you're wounded among your friends for sure. But it's part of the privilege. You might say, well, how do I know? So Gabriel hasn't shown up to me lately. God's not Snapchatting me. I've got no text from heaven. There's a TV show. God friended me, I think. Anyway, and you say, well, so how do I know? The first thing, am I listening to God's voice? And guys, for me, this is twofold. Am I reading God's word? And am I doing so dependent on the Holy Spirit? First John tells us we've got a teacher right here. The Holy Spirit illuminates Scripture for us, makes real to us what God wants us to know in the moment. So am I reading God's Word and am I listening for the voice of the Spirit? And also, it's often that other believers will tell you things that God wants you to hear. I remember as a young Christian a long, long time ago, I had some opportunity to share something in the Sunday service and a guy came up to me afterwards and he says, Mike, you're gifted as a teacher, you should be teaching. Well, no one had said that to me before, and it's like, I need to think about that. I need to pray about that. And I think I've been teaching one form or another ever since. But God can speak to you through others as well. So, winding down. Like Mary, when God commissions us, He privileges us, He blesses us, He graces us to participate in what He's up to, is our thought, whether it's the first thought or the second, 
Is it, Lord, I'm your servant. Whatever you want, I'm good for it. I'm all in. Being all in is the only way to be. Let me pray and then we'll stand and we'll read from 1 Peter 5 together. Father, would you point out the areas in our life in which we've been saying no to you uh, because we don't want the participation or we don't want the cost that might come with it. Lord, would you help us to see through Christ's eyes that nothing could be greater than knowing you, than walking in fellowship with you, or that seeking to glorify you with our lives, Lord. Nothing is greater. Help us to live. Help us to respond to your privileges as Mary did, humbly and readily to say, we're your servant, we want to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, guys, uh, let's read this together to close down, and then David and the group will lead us in worship by song. Stretch, yawn, open the eyes if you need to. Let's read together, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.